welcome to Hell on Earth Appendix 4 War. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Chrisman. Though we've covered a lot of material on this series, uh, its central focus has been war. The Thirty Years' War, obviously. But the era we've looked at is a time of dynamic change and really the end of a lot of practices and the beginnings of some new ones. So today on the show, we'd like to take a deep dive into the nature of warfare in the 16th and 17th centuries, how wars were fought, who the warriors were, and by what new and terrible means they achieved their goals. And to help us, we are joined by none other than the war nerd himself, it's John Dolan. John, welcome to Hell on Earth. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been there. Nice place. Yeah. <laughs> so to start, let's go back to the previous age of warfare. By the time we mm-hmm. get to 1618, we're looking at mercenary armies, combined arms, and siege tactics. Uh, but what did European war look like before that? John, if you could give us a brief overview of what armed conflict looked like in the late Middle Ages. Yeah, well, I, I thought I'd, I'd sort of describe the different phases within medieval warfare because the Middle Ages are a long and uh, murky era in, in, I think, most people's minds and in historians' minds. The Middle Ages are traditionally supposed to end with the fall of Constantinople in 1453 and begin with the coronation of Charlemagne in 800. But, I mean, assuming we're talking about Europe, which in terms of the Thirty Years' War, we probably are. So uh, I think there's uh, three phases in there. There's 800 to one, roughly 1,000, and then 1,000 to 1,300, more or less, and then 1,300 uh, through the fall of Constantinople, or 1,300 to 1,500. So the first phase is when European warfare is a matter of much smaller armies, first of all, than in the ancient world. Uh, some of the armies in, I mean, we, we on Radio Warner have been talking about uh, naval battles in the Punic Wars, and there's a battle there that, that involved 300,000 fighters. Uh, <laughs> that You don't see that around Europe in uh, the first millennium, around 1000 AD, I thought I'd just describe one important battle, uh, especially because it involves some terrain that will come up again in the Thirty Years' War, and that's the Battle of Lechfeld in uh, 955 AD. This was a very important battle between the Magyars or Magyars, uh, the Hungarians, uh, when they were still mounted archers, uh, descendants of step fighters, and the uh, Holy Roman Empire uh, under Otto, basically a, a quasi-united Germany. The Magyars had been raiding nonstop uh, all the way into Muslim Spain from Pannonia, from the plains of Hungary, uh, and nobody knew how to stop them. Basically, European armies didn't know how to stop mounted step archers using compound bows and uh, agile little ponies until nine, uh, 9955, uh, where combination of Otto's uh, organizational skills and some luck and some mistakes ended the threat from step archers pretty much once and for all. And what happened was they uh, they decided to attack uh, 
attack in an area with uh, which was hemmed in by two rivers and flanked by a forest. And that meant they couldn't maneuver very well. And when they had to fight the mounted German knights, more or less, uh, they couldn't hold up because they uh, were not equally armored. It was raining. One good thing, if you ever have to fight a steppe army, try to fight them in the rain because the the bowstrings get all messed up. Uh, (laughs) And uh, basically there was a melee. uh, Most cavalry fights involved melees, uh, but it was not an equal melee because one side was heavily armored and used to just smashing people on the top of the head. And the other side did better when they could could move and the Hungarians couldn't move. So the uh, German knights uh, killed most of them. I mean, they, they even hanged some of the leaders, which to an aristocratic steppe society like the Hungarians, the Magyars, was, was shocking and, and horrific. Thieves got hanged. Uh, <laughs> leaders of whole clans don't get hanged. And they sent a few of the survivors back with minus their noses and their ears, which was, you know, in the old saying, a way of talking without saying anything. And uh, after that was the last raid into Western Europe by or Central Europe by the Magyars. That was really the end of an era. Before that, a, a lot of effort in, in European armies was involved in building defensive fortifications where everybody could run in and hopefully lock the door, although that didn't usually work. You know, whether they were trying, whether it was the fear of the, the, the Norse, the Turks, the Croats, the Moors, a rough category, uh, whatever was the local horse riding terror. And after that, it became possible to uh, go on the offensive and Europe started considering ways of going on the offensive. And that leads into the the high Middle Ages, as they're often called, 1000 to 1300. This was a relatively good time. There was actual global warming in a world that kind of appreciated it. I mean, you, you, if you're... Yeah, a, a the medieval peasant, high period, isn't that, yeah, is that called? Yes. Yeah, if you're a medieval peasant with like one one piece of clothing... You know, global warming doesn't seem like such a bad thing, and you can grow your crops, and maybe they'll survive. And uh, there, this is also a phase where there aren't a lot of radical changes in military technology. The longbow hasn't come into its own, let alone firearms. Uh, so basically, warfare has become kind of familiar. Warfare is mostly done on a feudal level, which involves a sort of fractal uh, loyalty, uh, that is the king calls up his barons, those barons call up their barons, and then the those little barons call up the freemen who can afford to equip themselves with a horse, and then those guys call up anybody who's not going to be a useless mouth to feed on the march, anybody who can swing uh, an edged weapon of any kind. So warfare generally becomes... Uh, somewhat more familiar, somewhat less terrifying for most of Europe. Uh, There are exceptions everywhere. But then around 1300 to 1500, you start getting new weapons, especially in the Hundred Years' War, which begins in 1337, 
you get uh, the longbow first used in the wars between the English and the Welsh. The Welsh killed an awful lot of English knights, uh, but they didn't quite have the numbers to to defeat the English. And the English said, ah, this works. Uh, this works against heavy cavalry. And that's when you get those famous battles leading to Kenneth Branagh doing hammy speeches about Agincourt, <laughs> you know, this, this band of brothers, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot, that was a really interesting weapon. Like the reenactors have done some good work with longbows and apparently all that John Keegan's cliche about the arrow cloud is not true. Longbow archers fired at armored knights, pretty much point blank direct fire. You wanted to punch through that armor and you didn't, you know, point the bow 45 degrees in the sky, you just tried to put it through their heads and and you had a good chance of succeeding. So the power of the bow really came from its use even as a close-up weapon? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah it was, that's not how I think about it. <laughs> no, no, that's not how it's usually talked about. But, you know, an, an arrow in an arrow cloud is is falling. It's it's actually mm-hmm. falling. What What makes it do that nice parabola is that it's falling. I mean, it has some force, but it has a lot more force if you fire it at a shallow angle and it punches through somebody's breastplate uh, or it punches through the horse's armor, which is really just as good and, and generally a lot easier. But then comes the the really big change in warfare, which is the slow and uneven introduction of gunpowder weapons. I mean, they go all the way back to the ninth century in China as far as anybody knows, but uh, then around 1,200 people start talking about what are roughly firecrackers and people being the nasty little clever things they are. You get from firecrackers to putting a little lead pebble in there uh, pretty soon. So that's kind of the the overall nature of arms and armament and war. And you mentioned briefly the, um, you know, how... Armies were formed, the marshalling of, of people, the kind of medieval phone tree of, uh, you know, calling up some, you know, subdivisions of barons. Uh, could you talk maybe a little bit about like the, uh, you know, the character of the knight or as a leader of this time, especially in comparison to what we're going to see later is like as we move into a more professionalized military, uh, you know, who, who were these like commander f- figures in, in this era before we move on to the next phase? Yeah, well, the the uh, the knight develops throughout this era. Like uh, a knight uh, seems to have started out as uh, a mounted fighter, and there are mounted fighters who are not noble or not necessarily noble through the Middle Ages. They they that's the original term for man at arms originally in in French, but knight because. The knight is something like the apex predator in this kind of uh, warfare, gets associated with nobility uh, around 1100, as far as anybody can tell. And then that leads to a code of chivalry. But an aristocratic fighter has certain characteristics that you see in the Song of Roland, which is supposed to be a Carolingian uh, story. So it's supposed to go back all the way to the 800s. And that, that doesn't depend on, on being on a horse. Uh, it depends on being absolutely unafraid. And, you know, the, 
codes that insist on acting unafraid generally create the people that they want to create. So that the Song of Roland is very typical of chivalrous songs in that the lesson, the moral of the story is don't be too goddamn brave and get everybody killed, <laughs> um, which, which is actually the moral of a lot of, a lot of stories. I mean, there's, there's something sort of similar to that, even all the way back to the Iliad. Like, yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, don't get everybody killed because <laughs> it takes a lot. I mean, food is hard to come by. Raising a warrior takes a really long time, and it's a terrible loss. Uh, but if you are raised on a code of never retreat, then, uh, well, that's what happens to uh, Roland. You know, he, he refuses to blow his great horn to save the army because chivalry demands that. And when he cleaves some Saracen's head, and they weren't Saracens, they were Basques, but in the, in the song they're supposedly Saracens, he has a really interesting insult which shows how social rank gets involved with this kind of Bushido stuff. When somebody comes up to him to try to kill him as he's dying there, pierced with many wounds, he says, who are you, you nobody? And then brings his <laughs> great sword down on the guy's head. Uh, like, you know, I, as well, in a Woodhouse story, it would be a complete outsider. Uh, and uh, therefore, you deserve to die. So, yeah, knight, knight originally means uh, a heavy cavalryman without any implication of nobility, but it, it comes to mean nobility to the point that it's, I mean, the titles are still being issued. And at this point, they don't involve much implication about how well you can swing a, a heavy sword. But they still have that implication rather ridiculously that, you know, you, you are someone of quality. I think Sean Connery is a knight, in fact, <laughs> is the ultimate in ridiculous. Yes. Actors, you know, a lot, a lot of knighted actors at this yeah. point, you know. Um, so then as we move on into the, uh, you know, 15th and 16th centuries, you know, in, in our series, uh, we kind of pinpointed, uh, this ongoing conflict of the Italian wars, the kind of ongoing Habsburg Valois conflict for, as a kind of transitionary point between this older form of late medieval warfare and what we would then recognize as a newer form of warfare by the time we get to the, uh, 30 years war, especially involving the total implementation of um, firearms, uh, you know, the, the development of the pike and shot formations. And then also, as I just alluded to earlier, the changes in mobilization techniques and the mm. rise of the uh, mercenary army. So uh, could you maybe talk about that transitionary moment the, uh, of the 16th century and uh, how those things were developed around those that time? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of this uh, has to do with... Uh with firearms because firearms require a different kind of army. And that's a really slow development. Um, the earliest European photo of a man with a gun, something identifiable as a gun comes from 1326. Uh, and then there are treatises uh, about how to use a gun. But in the beginning, they're not the first weapon that cast into doubt the uh, the alleged uh, supremacy of heavy cavalry, which is which is more complicated than that, but they they are the final nail really in that. Um, 
at, for the transition stage, by the way, I just want to say, if people haven't seen a movie, an Italian movie called The Profession of Arms uh, by Olmi, it's an amazing movie. Uh, it's about an episode in, in the Italian wars, uh, someone leading a small band of sort of guerrilla fighters against a German invasion into Italy. Uh, and throughout the most of the Middle Ages, it's a, it's a cliche of medieval history that uh, you avoid big battles. No one wants big battles. They're very expensive, and you're rolling the dice on your, your life and your family's life and the existence of your principality. So there's a lot of uh, raiding, uh, the chevauchet, uh, and that becomes a somewhat different thing when, when you're using firearms. But firearms develop slowly as a feature of medieval warfare right through the 14th century. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on in the 14th century. It's generally remembered as a pretty grim time. I mean, there's the 1348 plague, which wipes out a gigantic chunk of the European population. I was talking to a Norwegian who said, yeah, basically the biggest event in Norwegian history was uh, 1348, the, no, 1349, because that's when it got to Norway, mm -hmm. uh, the plague. Uh, and we were never the same after that. <laughs> um, that's a long time not to be the same. But anyway, right. so wh while this is happening, uh, the the, uh, the two kinds of weapons that can make heavy cavalry less effective, the longbow and the rudimentary firearms are coming into use. There are wooden cannons <clears throat> being used in European war right around the beginning, sorry, right around the middle of the uh, 14th century. And then in the Battle of Crecy, also around the middle of the 14th century, there are uh, strange-looking weapons like organ weapons. One of them looks like a rake, a uh, garden rake. Only the tines of the rake, each one is a barrel, and you can fire all the barrels. You're not looking for pinpoint accuracy, but if you fire them in the face of a cavalry charge against you, you know, it's sort of like firing a Claymore mine at them and it's going to do some damage. Uh, so nobody quite knows in the beginning how to deal with those. Uh, the cannons in the beginning are just weird things, uh, like often big wooden tubes banded with metal and you put a big chipped globe of a stone in there and then you fire it at, at curtain walls and most uh, most castles and strong points have only curtain walls because that's all you really need before firearms and that kind of changes the rules. Uh, the walls become lower and thicker and you can't do sieges in the traditional way. So that's the two main forms of warfare markedly changed. You can't do simple cavalry raids anymore because you got to think about who's got a gun. And you can't do traditional siege or resisting siege because, you know, that you lay siege if you're the attacker, but you also resist siege. The, the defensive side of a siege is also important. But, you know, once these guns come into play, they start 
developing really quickly. Uh, because warfare, I guess <clears throat> that's something we need to say first, warfare is a yearly or almost a perennial fact, uh, not in terms of giant wars like the Thirty Years' War, but raids into the people over the hills territory, uh, raids to teach your sons how to fight, uh, raids with some other local lords to uh, see what you can do to those Dern heretics or pagans a few mountain ranges away. This means that there's constant practice. Uh, everybody's trying out what's working, uh, what isn't working. But then the big canons start to appear in the later 14th century. Uh, the, the basilisk canons appear. Uh, some of these could fire a 900-kilogram projectile against a target. But then you also start to get the development of smaller hand cannons, and hand cannon is a term in the beginning, uh, and then uh, matchlocks with flash in the pan, which comes from matchlock where you know you drop the, the burning uh, fuse onto your matchlock and it, it fizzes, but it doesn't shoot the gun. That's where that comes from. And this is going to change everything. Um, it doesn't mean that edged weapons are no longer useful, uh, but edged weapons were best starting with the phalanx when you had deep, solid formations. Uh, firearms require a spread out line, and that's going to lead to this famous innovations by uh, Gustav Adolf uh, of Sweden, the, the battalions. Uh, supposedly replacing the tercio, uh, but not necessarily really. So the whole shape of formation in battle is going to change. And that's going to have some social changes with it because uh, if you've got a gun, um, pretty much everybody is equal with a gun. It doesn't take as long to learn as a longbow. I mean, that's one of the biggest things about longbows. Ben Franklin famously said, why don't we teach our troops to learn longbows instead of firing muskets. And that was kind of the half-bright kind of thing that Ben Franklin was always saying because, <laughs> yeah, it's true. You can fire a longbow. If you've ever seen anybody doing the, the new reconstructions of how to use a longbow, they don't stand still and aim it into the air. They jump around and they shoot at targets, and it's scary. But the thing is, the reason the English could have a longbow force once they stole it from the Welsh, is that they enforced training every Sunday on the village square. And if you weren't there, somebody was going to come after you because you had to practice that longbow for hours every single week. It was your duty. Uh, with a gun, you know, you just sort of have to point it in the general direction because you couldn't really aim the thing. This is not a rifled musket. This is just a giant, scary pea shooter. And uh, almost anybody could be trained to do that. And that has very big social changes, social effects too. Like what does a night mean when you can just pick up a musket and take a few days training and then learn how to fire it 
or potentially uh, as a commander, Shanghai a bunch of peasants into it and get yeah. them ready to take on a knight within a week's training or something. Yeah, and, and you know, that's that was not a feature of, of medieval warfare. One of the things about medieval warfare, they did not want a bunch of peasants following after them much, most of the time. You might want a bunch of peasants when you were trying to defend a castle or something because it's not that hard to throw rocks down on people and throw spears down at people. But you had to feed them. Uh, and food was scarce, and you could not expect them to hold the line in battle, especially if they were going to be attacked by heavy cavalry. Uh, in, in fact, it was guaranteed that they would run. I mean, when you think of that famous Braveheart scene, it's like, um, uh, you can fight or you can run. <laughs> and years from now, you'll be thinking, I mean, at that point, the whole Scottish peasantry would have been over the next hill, you know, <laughs> be, before uh, Mel Gibson could stop them. We can run? Okay. <laughs> uh, because it, it just didn't make sense to go up against people who could afford giant horses, really giant horses. Uh, they didn't even ride those horses. It was too uncomfortable. They rode um, saddle horses, palfreys to the battle. Then they switched over to their their tank horses. Uh, you didn't want to fight things like that, it, you know, and it didn't really make sense. But with a with an early gun, you kind of have a chance. Uh, so a lot of European industry goes to developing saltpeter, one of the big ingredients of of gunpowder, which involved basically collecting a lot of shit and piss. And uh, letting the saltpeter leach out of that, you know, it's kind of a, in many ways, it's, it's kind of an ugly industry, but it's very effective. Isn't like a guano, like a big, yeah. like bat guano, like a huge way to to exactly, uh, harvest that? Exactly. Yeah. Cave guano was a really important source of saltpeter. So you're literally yeah. Yeah, digging shit out of a cave to feed the yeah. war machine. Yeah, oh, I don't like caves. I, <laughs> no, it does not seem Mark like a, a good industry to be in. I got lost in a cave in, in Laos once, and it's like, <laughs> I don't ever want to go back to a cave after that. Caves are ugly. They look better in movies, but uh, no. And uh, so the cannons are developing really fast, and uh, they become creatures of leg legend. They become sort of like the uh, dragons of the time, and they're often called that. I mean... And they come into Central European religious wars really early on, like the Hussite Wars in the 1420s. They first have war wagons uh, with uh, the supplies for the cannon, and then the cannon would be dragged in the back. And this is field artillery beginning to develop. Um, The uh, gunpowder is developing faster and faster. It's being more effective. And, you know, you get the cannons developing to the point where they only explode and kill the gunners, you know, maybe one time out of ten, which is totally acceptable uh, for most <laughs> of the people who are not on the gun crews. And then they, they develop uh, into these giant things that enter European folklore in the 15th century. There's one called, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, like Dolgret, which... Uh, something like Mad Greta. Uh, there's a Bruegel painting about this, about Dulgret, because she's a famous folklore figure. She was supposedly uh, 
so tough that she goes down into hell and scares the the devil and his minions out of it. Uh, and the English version of that is Mad Meg. And you get all these giant cannons named after that. The other innovations that you you would expect, shells are in place, explosive shells rather than just giant boulders by 1440. And then, of course, the the events that signal in traditional history the end of the uh, Middle Ages in Europe, the fall of Constantinople. There's a really interesting story about cannons there. There was a uh, Hungarian named Orban, which is rather an odd coincidence because there's a yes. Hungarian named Orban now yeah. who actually runs the country. Yeah, And uh, this Orban was... Uh, in the parlance of their times, uh, a Valachian, and he was working as a metallurgist and a cannon smith in Constantinople in 1450, and he said, hey, I can make you some really magnificent cannons in a, a whole new league, but uh, the Byzantine remnant had no money, had, had no nothing by that point. Constantine the Eleventh just said, uh, you know, I've got no money, and by the way, I'm scheduled to die fighting on the walls to, uh, to the illustrious memory of every nerd in history who reads about this <laughs> in a couple of years from now. So, no, I can't help you. So Orban then goes to the Turks and says, I make cannons. I'm really good at it. I can blast those, <clears throat> those walls down for you. He builds a giant gun at Adrianople, uh, siege of a, a disastrous battle for the Romans uh, centuries earlier. It gets dragged by dozens of oxen all the way to the walls of Constantinople, and it just starts blasting the walls down. And that's how Constantine the Eleventh uh, met his destiny, fighting on. I mean, I read this when I was a kid. Just an illustration in an encyclopedia somewhere. The last Byzantine emperor, Constantine the Eleventh, died fighting on the walls. Oh God, that was so cool! That was, that, that was my whole ambition: die fighting on the walls. It probably wasn't really so nice uh, in reality, especially because he probably had a family inside the walls, and it, it just don't bear thinking about. But uh, so yeah, he, he, they use this thing called the Dardanelles gun, sixteen tons, twenty-seven feet long, and. There's a, a famous description of it by uh, a, an Ottoman soldier who said, and when it had caught fire, faster than you can say it, there was just a terrifying roar and a violent shaking of the ground beneath and for a great distance around and a din such as never been heard, then a monstrous thundering and an awful explosion and a flame that illuminated everything around and scorched it propelled the stone ball powerfully out, projected with incredible force and power. The stone struck the wall, which it immediately shook and demolished, and it was itself shattered into many fragments. And that was sort of like the end of, of the line for one form of warfare, because the walls of, of Byzantium were, were a legend. They weren't supposed to be pierceable. Soon after that, other developments, mortars, meaning you can sit outside the city walls and not fire at the walls, fire over the walls, and destroy what's in the city. And at the same time, miniaturization, 
uh, a shoulder stock gets added. Because you can imagine, it wasn't much fun to fire these early hand cannons when there was no stock. <laughs> you could probably fire them once and then wait six months uh, for your shoulder to heal. Um, but the stock helps with that. And they fire faster. There's a, there's a case around this time, the, the late 15th century, of a gunner who was forced to make a, a long penitential pilgrimage because his uh, comrades thought he had made a pact with the devil because he could fire his gun, his <laughs> cannon, three times a day. And that, that just seemed unnatural. Uh, that, that was not right. So soon there's, there's a massive explosion. I mean, remember, there was, there was three centuries of high Middle Ages where there's not a lot of innovation militarily. And then in the 15th century, things are happening very, very fast leading up to the, the Italian wars where, well, I can just recommend that you see Profession of Arms by Olmi because it involves Italian raiders on chevauchet who have developed armor so good that uh, it can protect you from hand cannon. And there are apparently no real artillery in this German uh, force, which is invading down into Italy. But one trader provides them with, uh, uh, what is it called? I think a serpentine, a, a long, narrow piece of artillery. And that changes the whole character of the battle. Uh, so you mentioned sieges and how... The middle-aged siege was, uh, that conduct was ended by this innovation in, in artillery. By the time we get to the Thirty Years' War, uh, sieges become the most uh, common sort of form of, of military conflict, more so than battles. Uh, and both the Thirty Years' War and the Eighty Years' War, which is happening before and at the same time, are a la largely a series of these sieges. Uh, what was it like to be in one of these early modern sieges and what were the techniques for fighting one? Yeah, I've, I've thought about that and I, I've read some accounts of this, but you just have to imagine the misery, just incredible misery. Uh, before the army approaches to lay siege to your town, usually the people from the countryside will be driven in and they'll add to the crowding. Uh, and then it depends on how long it takes you to starve or be swarmed. Um, uh, and obviously we're leading up to things like the, the storming of Magdeburg in which everybody's slaughtered, but that, that isn't exactly the norm. They die, but they're not, they're not slaughtered. It's more like Tigray right now, you know, we didn't actually kill them, you know. We just kind of cut off aid and ended communications, and they just happened to die. <laughs> uh, so during the Hundred Years' War, for example, there's a siege. I forget which city in France is being besieged uh, by the English. Oh, yeah, I think it's Rouen. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and the food situation inside becomes so terrible that uh, they eat first uh, the horses, then the dogs, then the cats, and then they eat the mice. And at that point, the English, not generally known for their compassion in that war, uh, allow uh, thousands of peasants from the surrounding areas who are terrorized into the city. And the Rouen authorities 
then force them back out into the ditch between the fortifications and the English uh, line surrounding the city. And on Christmas Day, an English uh, priest comes out to uh, offer them some food. And so they have a really nice Christmas. Um, but, but then it gets to be, you know, like January 17th and they're all dying. Uh, <laughs> they're not, they can't get into Rouen. They can't really escape from around Rouen. And they're, they're just going to die. So what you're doing is uh, basically reducing the morale and the health and uh, eventually trying to end the lives of everybody inside. You're also probably making a deal with whoever the ruler is, but that depends a lot on local arrangements. There's also the factor of disease. You can really hope for disease. There are unreliable accounts of people throwing diseased carcasses into besieged towns. I, I can't swear to that. But then you also have, as a besieger, the problems of money and being attacked from outside. I mean, if these people have any friends in the larger world, they're going to try to raise an army and relieve the siege. That's what Joan was doing with Orléans a lot of the time. Uh, and... Uh, you have to worry about that. So really, a lot of sieges involve making fortifications with two sides, one facing the city and one facing outward to defend your siege lines uh, against any attempt to relieve the city. And there are probably negotiations going on at the same time. Most cities in Europe are, I mean, it's a really well-watered area, uh, so most people have water uh, this, the, when they don't, the city has usually provided cisterns or something. In other parts of the world, it's not like that at all. But in Europe, it, it, there's plenty of water. So food becomes the issue and disease and morale in general. And, how and then money. How long can you afford to pay your soldiers? Because as the 15th and 16th century progress, you, many countries uh, – the better, more centrally organized countries like England and Sweden begin to uh, have national levies, which are actually paid on a, something like a regular basis, fed on something like a regular basis. And that's a problem for a besieging general. You've you got to handle all those people. You've got to manage them. You've got to keep them employed. If you've got mercenaries in your party, you've got to keep them incentivized, let's say. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. you have to allow a certain level of looting usually. Um, and that can cause problems too because they can get ambushed out there and or they can start talking to people on the other side and start making deals. It's basically a really ugly, 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 treacherous form of warfare. And of course, the children die first. Children always die first in a siege. Right. So just on the, on the um, discussion of mercenaries and the new put into mercenaries, I mean, just to, to be clear about how much of a difference that would be, you know, you talk about, you know, money as a limiting factor. You know, when we're thinking about the Middle Ages warfare and the system of, you know, calling up your barons and whatever, you, you, the idea is at that time you, your army would be self-funded. Like the people you called up are basically supporting themselves, correct? As opposed to a top-down payment distribution plan, which is another, you know, significant change of this era. 
Yeah, but well, I think you do have a responsibility for them. Uh, not that you know. I think a lot of uh, early medieval leaders lay awake at night worrying if all their forces were well fed. But if they're really being badly handled, they'll just uh, start running for the woods. So you have you have to supply them with something. The loyalty is a, a tricky business. Uh, I think most of us have read. Machiavelli in you know first year history and uh, he's very anti mercenary and uh, so we all think from the history of the Italian city states uh, mercenaries are stupid mercenaries don't work but mercenaries did work a lot of the time and uh, in Italy it was more like they had become the entire force because Italian city states because they didn't have the feudal organization if you're a city state how are you a knight in a city? You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't work. Uh, those city states were bankers. There's, uh, if you know the uh, uh, the Accursed Kings books, there's there's a really strong context in those books. Between contrast between the character of this Genoese banker uh, and the family of the woman he's in love with, who are French knights. Uh, the French knights consider him a complete inferior because he has no family background in their terms. But at the same time, they live in this giant shed in the middle of nowhere and they've got no money and their horses are about to die. Uh, But they still won't let him marry her. And to him, because the Italian cities were far, far more advanced than most of Northern Europe, it's deeply puzzling to him. Like, um, what are these people basing their pride on? You know, they, they eat oatmeal every day, uh, and, and yet they're snotty with me. So the, the Italian cities didn't think of themselves as being uh, lacking in morale because they hired mercenaries. They thought it was a sign basically that, you know, we got better things to do. <laughs> So then let's move on into the actual 30 years war. Uh, And I think the, maybe the figure that we can use to best look at the uh, developments of this era is uh, Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, Mm. And, you know, he is one of the most popular figures from the time. Uh, Everybody likes hearing about this, uh, you know, Swede upending the entire conflict by, you know, trampling in from the North with his superior organization and, uh, use of the current technologies. But uh, I guess my question is, uh, what did Gustavus Adolphus actually do? Is is there is he everything that he's cracked up to be in popular history? Is there a revisionist take on him? What were his innovations? And how how good was he when you rate him against the greats? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. I don't claim to have any especially insightful answers, but I have looked into this preparing for the show. And it's a really interesting question because First of all, when you know you look at war nerdery around Europe, you, there's there's totally unashamed, enthusiastic war nerdery among the Anglo's. Even though we have quite a lot to be ashamed of if we were going <laughs> to bother with shame, uh, but there there's a real caution among the other uh, nations of Northern Europe, uh, even though they have really fascinating and illustrious histories too. And yet this changes where Gustavus Adolphus comes in. He's, 
he is, as far as I can tell, something like a patriotic hero for uh, Swedes, even in the 21st century. And this affects his reputation. Uh, it might even be that he's a, a patriotic hero for Protestants, but then you'd have to believe that there were Protestants in Northern Europe. And, and I don't know. <laughs> if it's like the one part of the world where Protestants aren't doing very well. Everywhere else, they're... In Ethiopia, you know, in Argentina, in Brazil, everywhere they're doing really, really well, but not in Northern Europe. So I don't know quite what leads to this patriotism, but it's clear that it's there. And I think it may have given him a, an inflated reputation uh, because he did have a well-organized army and he didn't, but it was a Swedish army. It, it didn't depend entirely on him. I mean, Sweden was fighting in Poltava uh, in the heart of Ukraine. And then uh, in Narva, in what is now Estonia, there's a beautiful scene, forget where, of a Swedish uh, pike, unit of pikemen just marching in in complete silence into a fortress in Narva and just sort of relentlessly marching through it and skewering anybody uh, who got in their way. So I think there was, there was a, a feeling in Sweden of something like egalitarian militarism that inspired a lot of magnificent campaigns. But I don't know that he deserves all the credit for that. And the strangest thing is, when I was looking at this, uh, pre preparing for the show, nobody wants to talk about Wallenstein. I mean, uh, Wallenstein did things that, that are astonishing. I mean, he gets dismissed by this idiot of an emperor, and he, he's middle-aged and gouty, and he says, the hell with it then. Okay, fine. Then he gets reappointed. He forms an army of over 100,000 men, multiple nations. And, and Schiller in his plays about Wallenstein emphasizes this. Like, how do you think this army stays together? Why do you think the, the Croats don't kill the Bavarians? Why do you think the Bavarians don't kill the Franconians? Why do you, and it's Wallenstein. And uh, – he seems to get no credit for this at all. He's a very unfashionable figure at the moment, which I don't understand because he's, he's really remarkable. Because after this, he recreates an army in a few weeks, leads it into battle, and uh, at Alta Festa defeats Gustavus Adolphus uh, pretty decisively. Uh, and then, cut, then by marching more intelligently than Gustavus Adolphus, Gustavus Adolphus moves into the southwest of Germany, hoping to winter there. And then he discovers that Wallenstein has moved north to cut his supply line from Sweden. And as a result, he has to march his troops, force march, 17 days straight, uh, up to the Battle of Lutzen, where he's destroyed and killed. Uh, to me, that's pretty magnificent, not just the the strategic skills, but the organizational skills. Astonishing. And I, I don't know why he doesn't get more credit. I think part of it might be the very fact that his reputation is uh, associated with the, the Schiller plays and, and the 19th century German romantics. 
And for some reason, the Germans don't like to talk about those guys yeah. and their inspirations much anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, I, that's really true of Germans. It's a shame. I, you have to read history in a mighty strange way to read Auschwitz back onto them. Uh, <laughs> but that seems to be a popular thing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, this kind of diverges from the, the topic of just simple war. But I think that is one of the things that I've thought of a lot doing this series is that it's not so simple when you're looking at the, the straight ahead at the conflict of the 30 years war yeah. to say like there is a like a good, a, the good guys and the bad guys here. It's it's it's, you know, as Matt was just alluding to, you know, trying to read on some kind of German nationalism to any of the specific, you know, I think that happens to Bernard Sachs Weimar a little later, too. Yeah. But it, that all seems like uh, like you know 20th looking at through the at the conflict through 20th century gla glasses when i mean you could just as much say that you know uh gustavus was leading his army on some kind of nationalist crusade or well, whatever he's, he's certainly absolutely trying to create a swedish empire yes uh, and trying to accumulate more foreign territories as as fast as he can and then you're dealing with a war in which the overwhelming mass of the civilians who were massacred are germans uh, they're, they're the victims in most of this war. Uh, and everybody else is involved. The French are sending money. Uh, Richelieu is, is just doing anything he can to keep the war going uh, and to keep the Swedes uh, messing up the German lands uh, as, as much as he can. Uh, ev everybody else is involved here uh and it's it's mighty strange uh i i was thinking of like who gets the credit for the 30 years war and i was thinking you know uh charles the first of england because he stayed out maybe <laughs> I mean, well and look how that turned out for him yeah well for him yes but <laughs> for them yes. it turned out pretty well well let you you know you were just talking about you know the the real deprivations of the war were visited upon the German people. So maybe let's stick on that for a second. And, you know, we, we discuss in our main series, uh, and you, you, uh, mentioned, uh, the, the siege and eventual, you know, uh, atrocities at Magdeburg. Uh, mm -hmm. and so I, I was just wondering, and, and maybe you don't have anything on this, but like, um, do, do you have any sense of, of how, during this time, if there was any developing, you know, sense of the idea, the very earliest ideas of a, a war crime or, you know, how uh, civilian casualties were absorbed into the concept of war making around then. Uh, and, you know, maybe the answer is that it still wasn't even a, even really a factor in the way people thought about making war during the 17th century. I, I think it, it, it was a, a factor in an amorphous way. I don't think anybody tried to codify it uh, to the extent that people did after 1945. And I don't think that's been uh, all that much of a success either because somehow exceptions keep getting made for whoever's on top. But uh, I think, frankly, you know, the national identity phase of uh, the West, if there is such a thing, is pretty recent. Before that, it was uh, a world divided into Christendom, the Ummah, the Muslim world, and the pagans. And, you know, there were a lot of pagans to the Northeast, even, even in uh, the high Middle Ages, or at least they thought there were. So they tended to be a little less squeamish 
about massacres committed by Christian armies on non-Christians, such as the Jerusalem massacre in 1099, uh, the Frankish invaders, uh, mostly French, uh, some German and English and others, uh, break into Jerusalem, kill Muslims and Jews. There was a memory of that, and it made some people flinch, but I, I think it also made some people feel that it was a triumphal moment in what was a long, long war between faiths. And uh, when your faith was able to do something as devastating as this, it was a sign from your God that you know that your God was was winning. So that when the Albigensians in the the 13th century became formally identified as heretics, that is non-Christians. Uh, you know, it's kind of an Islamic state way of looking at things. Uh, very, very common. <laughs> then they were prey. They were, uh, they were killable. And uh, the idea of wiping out the Qatar in southern France was completely legitimate. But when somebody was identified as a fellow Christian, then there was a certain amount of squeamishness about that. It still happened. Like uh, the beginning of the 14th century, the Matins of Bruges, the uh, Flemish forces massacre thousands of French soldiers who were asleep. I think it was like uh, there was a reaction to that, but it was more like, oh, come on, man, they were sleeping. Uh, you know, <laughs> let them wake up, let them put on their stuff, and then, you know, then you can kill them. But uh, there was a trial for a kind of war crime in 1474. Um, one uh, Peter von Hagenach <clears throat> was uh, put up before a tribunal of the Holy Roman Empire because he was supposed to be in charge of preventing, quote, unruly behavior. And God knows what unruly behavior meant. I mean, a trail of corpses 10 miles long, I'm sure. <laughs> <clears throat> but they took it seriously enough that he was condemned to death and he was beheaded. Gustav Adolf is famous for having uh, put some constraints on his troops, though there, there's a mixed story about that. I don't know. Where did the whole Schweden trunk come from? I yeah. mean, wh wh how come they invented their own torture if there was if if they were being so restrained? I don't know. Uh, and but basically, uh, killing unless it can be defined within a a just war, and that that includes both Protestant and Catholic definitions, does constitute a deadly sin. So. Yeah, I, I think there was an awareness of uh, atrocities as atrocities, but there was probably not this uh, sense that uh, every time you burn peasants' houses and uh, rape their families and slit their throats, a terrible crime was committed. It was more that war was was hell, as Sherman would say, and whether an army occupied a village, whether it was friendly or hostile, you were out of luck if that army passed through. Yeah, the closest thing you have uh, is people inventing the idea of uh, of just war, like uh, Hugh Gros Hugo Grotius, uh, who's, who's a who's that, uh, Dutch diplomat during the period. He starts 
promulgating ideas that justify the war. Uh, and if you have, if you are engaged in a just war, then what happens sort of happens. Like necessity is now d- determining events, and you can't really be held to any standard in individual cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the uh, yeah, what, what is it? Uh, violence wielded by a righteous authority for the greater good. Um, so, yeah, if, if the cause is just, then what, what happens is just. It was, and one thing that Mark Ames has been arguing to go a bit afield in the case of Ukraine is that Americans in particular seem to forget that when the Nuremberg trials started uh, formulating the conceptual framework for their verdicts, aggression, starting a war, was the big crime because that leads to all the other crimes. Uh, So that the, the big crime in Ukraine is going to war. That was, that was a horrible, evil thing. Um, so yeah, a lot of it comes down to that, that same mode of thinking, uh, even at Nuremberg, like we accept implicitly that if there's a war, horrible things are going to happen. So you better be right in starting one. Well, then let's move maybe towards the end of our era of conflict. You know, we, um, you know, kind of say that the last major battle of the Thirty Years' War, the last major armed conflict is uh, at Rakhoi. Um, And, you know, we mentioned in the main series that the, um, you know, as Wedgwood says, the the battle marker at Rakhoi is the graveyard of the, or the the tombstone of the Spanish Empire. And that's, Mm one of the last times you see things like Tercios uh, put in place. So I was just wondering what your take on when this era of warfare kind of ends or how it transitions into the next phase of warfare after this. Yeah. Well, I know that a lot of people who are much more learned than I am say that something changed at the end of the 30 years war, Uh, that there was a kind of wave of disgust in the European elite to the point that, um, uh, well, Anibale, uh, who's been a frequent guest of ours and a brilliant guy, says that Europe sort of finally reached the point that China had reached after the period of warring states long, long before, which was, don't talk about religion. If you have to talk about religion, at least don't kill anybody over it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that that was a big change, and it worked out in some parts of Europe anyway. Uh, but I, to me, um, what follows is the discovery of the rest of the world and a double standard that exists to this day, which is, you know, if you did horrible things in places very far away from Europe— you're going to get away with them a lot better mm-hmm. than if you did them in Europe. And uh, obviously that that worked to the advantage of the imperial powers and it did not work at all to uh, powers in Central Europe or the Mediterranean who were cut off from that whole development. I guess I would like to ask this question just curious, out of curiosity. So we, uh, the, the type of warfare we're talking about, the, the, uh, the artillery, pike and shot, the cavalry uh, that is occurring in Europe in the 17th century. How is that different from what's happening in China and India 
uh, the, the Ottoman lands. Like, what is what is the military uh, uh, doctrine and, and uh, tactics of that comparatively? Yeah. Uh, well, okay, that's a big question. Um, I I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. That's that's over my head, uh, beyond my pay grade. Um, I think uh, the big encounters between European armies and uh, armies of those those Indian and Chinese and other uh, Asian cultures comes a bit later. Uh, but I will there. You know, I'll tell you one thing. Um, I was reading up on uh, matchlocks and the development of the serpentine. You know, the S-shaped thing that you touch to the pan, flash pan to make your your musket fire. And the amazing thing is, uh, in 1904, Sir Francis Younghusband, one <laughs> that's his name, <laughs> believe it or not, um, great, one of those uh, one of those urban knights, uh, <laughs> decides to invade Tibet. Uh, like, why? I don't know. People have seriously argued that it was because the Raj was running out of places to. Uh, win medals. I mean, you could only <laughs> provoke the Pashtun into fighting you, you know, so many times. Uh, so he invades Tibet and the Tibetans are out of the world. They've been out of the world. They were once a very powerful empire, but that was a thousand years ago and they're, and they're out of the world now and they don't know what's going on. So he encounters a group of men with 17th century matchlocks and so you know each each of these firearms has a little burning fuse because uh, you have to keep it burning you don't have time to light it if you need to fire and uh his troops have martini rifles uh very good repeating rifles uh so he to make the tibetans stand down orders his men in full view to shuck the shell, one shell, out of their martini rifles. And you can just imagine them giggling. Uh, and seeing this, the Tibetan soldiers who have no idea of a repeating rifle then douse the flames on their matchlocks. And then the uh, Sir Francis Young husband's troops on, on order uh, – aim, fire, and kill all of them. Uh, so there, there is a massive difference between um, the, the 17th century weapons and the constant evolution that has been going on, not just in Europe, but in Europe and parts of the world that have uh, had the bad luck to encounter Europe uh, in, in common conflict. But there are other parts of the world that, that are going to have to learn that lesson in a very hard way. Uh, all right. Well, I think that we will leave it there for this episode. Uh, John, thank you so much for uh, for bringing your war nerdery to hell on earth. Um, yeah, it was fun. Well, have can you tell have people, fun in hell. Yes. Can you tell people <laughs> where to, where to find? Uh, yes. Uh, where to find more more war nerd if they they would like some? Yeah, Radio War Nerd is on uh, Patreon. I always mispronounce it as Patreon. Patreon, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, we just had an interview with Seymour Hirsch, which uh, helped to make us even more unpopular than before. Um, 
yeah, speaking of hell on earth, interviewing Seymour Hirsch, wow, he's a scary guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, uh, yeah, you can you can find us on Patreon. Uh, yeah, I, I just uh, put out a newsletter today about the concept of jihad in uh, Frank Herbert and uh, oh, why great. and how it how it came out of uh, the Bay Area in the 1960s. So yeah, we uh, we talk about this and that and the Galder and other thing. <laughs> Great. Well, we love Warner here. Uh, please go find them and subscribe. John, thank you so much. Thank oh, you. my pleasure.